to the TechSpective podcast. Uh, I have uh, multiple guests this week from uh, from BugCrowd. So uh, I will let you guys introduce yourselves. Uh, Dave, why don't you go first? Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm Dave Gary. I'm the CEO here at BugCrowd. Super excited to be here. I've been in and around the AppSec space for a little over a decade now and joined forces with Casey uh, about 16 months ago. So we're, we're, uh, we've been doing this for a little while together now. Started off with BugCrowd on the customer side, then did some partnerships and uh, got the opportunity to join full-time, yeah, like I said, about 16 months ago. Casey? Yeah, um, so yeah, Casey Ellis, I'm the uh, the founder and CTO of BugCrowd. You know, started the company and, and basically kicked off this category of, of crowdsourced security as a service um, coming up on 12 years ago now, which feels like you know, yesterday and, and about a billion years ago all at once. Um, and Dave, you know, I mean, it's we've got some miles on the board now, but you're still kind of partly the new guy in my head. So I was, I was having a bit of a cognitive break as you were doing your intro there as well. But, um, but yeah, you know, basically yeah, founded founded by Crowd. Um, you know, been working on this uh, that, that entire time. I'm also the co-founder of the Disclose.io project, which is a, a vulnerability disclosure standardization and kind of policy evangelism uh, project that I've, I've worked with a bunch of other folk on over over the years. Um, yeah, my background, just real brief, is is basically hacker turned sales guy turned entrepreneur. So that's kind of the view of the world that I carry into all of this stuff. Okay, and I don't know, like I I, I won't presume that you would recall, but uh, you know, Casey, you and I met. Um, I want to say 2014-15 at yep. Black Hat. Um, yep. Maybe like a it might have been like the Rapid Seven party. Uh, with uh, I think I was hanging out with uh, Katie Masaurus. Nice, yeah, yeah. It's 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 all of those. I I love that. Um, I love Vegas as a catch-all for that as well. By the way, it's like I'm pretty sure we met. I'm pretty sure it was Vegas. <laughs> Any other detail around that's going to be kind of blurry, but that probably happened at some. That's point. right. So, yeah, I actually do recall is, that though. <laughs> I've been to enough black hats that I could probably say that to just about anyone in the industry and say, you know what, totally. we might have met one time at a thing. <laughs> Odds are good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so I mean, you, so you've been, you've been, you know, you know, Casey, you in particular, I, I, I like I said, we've met. I, I've been, I've, I've known of Bug Crowd. I've followed, you know, what you do. Um, like I said, I'm also, you know, good friends with Katie Mosuris, and I follow, you know, kind of the, the, the whole concept um, to an extent. Sure. Um, let's talk some, um, you know, I guess just about the. First of all, just give like, like what, do, what do you think is the kind of the state in general of, um, you know, ethical hacking, bug bounties, responsible disclosure, whatever, you know, like whatever blanket term we want to go with, like, um, yeah, yeah. Just well, it, and, and, and well, I think each of those three things that you just mentioned has a slightly different answer because I see those as as kind of children as uh, of the master concept, which is really the fact that like. Yeah, cybersecurity defense is a is a fundamentally human problem. You know, technology just kind of speeds it up. So, so really, you know, what what I set out to do originally was it wasn't so much solving a bug bounty problem or a, a vulnerability disclosure problem in you know per se because the industry didn't have those problems at the time. It had this issue of getting access to enough creativity to be able to basically solve problems before bad guys do. Um, and I think the difference between um, you know 2013 or even when you and I you know first met and, and today is probably two things. One is the need for that is so much more obvious now than it was 10 years ago. I think you know cybersecurity just in general. Um, you know when we first started out, it was 
like zealots, you know, standing on a street corners trying to get people to to care and pay attention to the fact that we should be doing this better. Um, we don't really have that problem any, anymore. Like, you know, security is dinner table conversation. I think that's kind of, you know, in one way a bad thing because the reason for that is a whole bunch of really bad stuff's happened. But the upside is that we can actually, you know, take stronger and, and more proactive steps towards doing it better and keeping users and shareholders safe and all those different things. So I think that's one part of it. I think the other is that, um, you know, hackers just in general um, uh, are acceptable as a solution now in a way that they just weren't 10 years ago. I think when we, again, when we first kicked off the idea of, you know, inviting someone with this skill set, um, I think in a lot of people's minds that equated to just inviting a criminal to come in and bang around and do stuff, which wasn't what we meant at the time. Um, but I think that's now better understood the fact that, you know, hackers are a part of the internet's immune system, like there's locksmiths and not just burglars, all those different things. I think there's a lot of progress that's been made on, on all of those fronts. Yeah. Um, do you have anything to, any thoughts to add, Dave? No, I, I would agree. I think as we've seen more and more government entities start to adopt this, as we see this become commonplace, as Casey said, I mean, we're seeing this more and more across large enterprise government. I mean, this is something that is at this point incredibly widely accepted, right? I mean, Casey, you've told me stories back 10 years ago, you had all the evangelism of, hey, we need to say why this isn't scary or why this shouldn't be scary and why in some cases, like you may not be engaging with the hacker community, but we can promise they're already engaging with you from a, a cyber criminal perspective, right? So this is an opportunity now to start to tap into that collective creativity and, and start to really disrupt the adversary in a new way. And, you know, it seems to me like even not, not even just the cyber criminal perspective, but the, the ethical hackers too, the gray, you know, gray hats, even you know, like, mm -hmm. like people yeah. are poking, people are poking around whether you want them to or not. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. so you may as well, you may as That's well totally sort of right. harness that and, 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 and get the benefits yeah. from it that you can. Um, you know, and you know, to, Casey, to your point, I think, um, you know, yeah, I think the, a lot of companies, you know, are the, the, the sort of the mindset of America, you know, corporate America and, and companies in general shifted to understand that if you, if you, if you cut out everyone who's ever, you know, hacked something, um, you dramatically decrease your pool <laughs> of talent available. Yeah. Um, just like, I yeah. mean, you know, I've got, I've got, a you know, tattoo sleeve on my arm, a, a lot of jobs that they'd be like, yeah, sorry, we know uh, that, that, that seems shady. We don't hire guys with tattoos. It's like, all right, well, you know, that, 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 that's your prerogative, but you're, you're limiting your talent pool then. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm originally from an island full of convicts, so I can, I can relate to that <laughs> on, on, on that side of things as well. I think you're right. I think, I think there's a, there's kind of a normalization. The fact that people have realized that that actually kind of wasn't really that like if it it felt, it probably felt like the right thing to do uh, you know this idea of trying to control things that are unfamiliar because that makes you feel safe that's humans do that all the time that's that's a rational thing but in this case what it's doing is it's cutting off the availability of all of this all of this you know potential solution to the problems that we've got out there and you know by the same token like the bad guys aren't restraining themselves in that sort of way so if we if we kind of continue, if we had have continued to think down that track, we would have been putting ourselves at an even broader disadvantage to the one that we're still trying to climb back from today. So, yeah, I think that's really well put. Yeah. Um, conceptually, for, for, for me, and, and, and uh, I, I will look for your input and you can correct me if I'm wrong. 
it seems to me that uh, part of the value of you know kind of the crowdsourced hacking kind of perspective is that you know if if I'm a developer and I create a product, you know I, I write code and it's supposed to you know it's going to be a spreadsheet or whatever. I'm even if I even if I follow secure development practices and 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 try to you know try to do everything I can to say hey you know I'm gonna, I'm going to make this code secure. There are still things that because I'm only thinking of it as a spreadsheet or whatever, like there's kind of a cognitive bias to it of like I can't see yep. the ways that it can be broken because I'm thinking of the ways that it, I 100%. want it to be used. Um, yep. and, and so the human creativity part for, is, is the huge part of it. It's the, it's the bringing in outside perspectives so that someone can look at it with fresh eyes and say, yeah, but what if you did this? Yeah. Yeah, like you're spot on. One of the ways I love to describe what what a, what a, what the hacker mindset is and what hackers do um, is to take kind of the assumptions that are built into a system that's put in front of them, and then basically just tip those things upside down to see what falls out, right? And then basically with that, you can you can do all sorts of different things depending on what your your motives are for doing that. That's agnostic to whether or not you're a good person or a bad person, and that whole conversation goes from there. But I don't want to derail off onto that. Your point um, of, of the fact that designers don't do that because, you know, as you say, they're trying to, they're focused on making the thing work. I think the part that's often a little hidden there as well is that making stuff work, that's hard too. So, so we're talking about trying to secure it and trying to get it not to do all of the things that it shouldn't according to this undefined adversary, right? Like just getting the damn thing to do what it should. There's plenty of work that goes into that side of things as well. So, yeah, the fact that we're in this state it's a it's a really I actually think it's a really healthy way to frame the conversation because I think there is a history <clears throat> between security and, and engineering of kind of pointing at each other and saying, no, you're the idiot. Like I'm the one who's right here and you just don't get it. And that goes in both directions. I think that's just yep. again, again, you know, kind of you can understand why it happens, but it's completely counterproductive. So to be able to, you know, mature from that and say, hey, like to err as human and building technology is difficult. Let's get as diverse a set of minds as we can to apply to this problem to make it, you know, functional and effective for our users, but also make it resilient, and safe at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it, it, even if you take it, you know, not not just ethical hackers, but take it to um, it just end users. Like, yeah, because if you go way, you know, way, way, way back, I'm, I'm dating myself now, but you go way back to early days of, of security and, and secure coding when it was just as simple as, well, I've created this form on, on and, and the form asks for your name and your birth date and your phone number, but I failed to put parameters on those fields that say that, well, this must be, you know, seven digits and this must be letters. Right. And all it takes is any any customer and like any end user to go, okay, but what if I just type a whole bunch of gibberish in this field? Then what happens? Um, and again, I think as the developer, you're like, yeah, but why? Why <laughs> Why would you do that? I asked you to put in your name. Why are you typing gibberish? Yeah. Yeah, or, or you're Irish and you've got an apostrophe in your surname, which breaks you know, a, an application because of the web app firewall. Like that was an actual thing that, that came up at one point in time as, as that whole kind of line of defense was maturing. Because yeah, to your point, no one thought of that until it happened. It's like, oh, okay, we've got to go off and fix there that. Was, so, um, yeah. There was a thing recently, um, and I talked about it in a, in a podcast a couple months back, but um, I think I want to say it was Ben, ben Rothke. Do you know Ben Rothke? 
Yes. Yep. Okay. Well, Ben, Ben was doing a thing. It had to do with uh, uh, jury duty in New Jersey or something. And um, as their check, they wanted you to put in like your mother's maiden name. And for whatever reason, they're, 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 whoever designed this form for the state of New Jersey or the county or whoever, you know, whatever, whatever level of government it was, they had a, a minimum character. It was like a minimum of, of six characters for the last name. And I was like, okay, but my mom's last name doesn't have six characters. You know, <laughs> so now what am I supposed to do? Now what? Right. Yeah. Well, and, and I think too, this is why, as you think about introducing AI, right? And that's a really big buzzword. So I don't want to totally go down the AI path, but as you think about introducing AI into security and making that a core part, it's just part of why as we started to get feedback, right? You mentioned the inside the mind of the hacker report earlier. And I think that's where when, when we went out and actually talked to the hacker community, 90 plus percent of them are already leveraging AI in some format, but yet another 72 or 74% said, hey, we don't think this is going to replace us because you're never going to be able to fully replicate and recreate that human creativity component. And that's really right. where we, we continue to see that, right? That's the value that hey, this isn't just another scanner that's going to produce noise or this isn't just another tool set or another widget or dashboard to go look at. You're tapping into this creative marketplace of talent that otherwise you would have no access to whatsoever, right? And that's really where yeah. our customers are getting a ton of success. Well, similar to what I was saying about like when you're the developer and you create a field for a name and you and you you would go, what, right. why, why are you typing something other than your name when that's what I asked? Yeah. But to your point, like I, I would look at that and I would say, yeah, AI can't, AI can help streamline, speed up, accelerate, like a, a lot of elements of what, of what we're trying to do here. But it lacks that creativity. And and, and as a, as a kind of a case totally. of point, and you know, I'll go back a few years with the you know the 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 progress of self driving vehicles and such. Um, and, you know, at one point, I want to say it's probably six years ago, seven years ago, you know, Elon Musk made some comment uh, to the effect of, you know, this would go a lot faster if you could take all the humans off the road because the cars understand the rules. Like, it's real easy to right. program a vehicle. He's, to not, follow the he's rules. not wrong. <laughs> but the problem yeah. is I put my self-driving car on the road and then some guy just like drives across the lane. I'm like, well, why the hell are you doing that? <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think I think the thing the, the thing I love about that side of it is that you've got you know the 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 unpredictable behavior of the developer, you've got the unpredictable behavior of the user, but then you've actually got the unpredictable behavior of the adversary. Like all of that that we just talked about is kind of the incidental stuff that happens. Like our entire space exists because of people that are trying to do that on purpose. So like that adds to me almost right. this kind of new layer of pressure and urgency, which is really, you know, it's, it's why it's why we started the company in the first place was to, you know, find ways to engineer human creativity into gaps in the cybersecurity solution space, like both, you know, at the time, but also thinking about whatever else might come in the future. And, you know, frankly, it's one of the things that I've really loved about <clears throat> going back to, you know, the intros, like working with Dave over the past 16 months as someone who's come in out of, out of AppSec as a career guy, like that's another observation I would make about our space over the past 10 years is it's it's normal now in a sense. Like it, there's, there's still these right. hacker stories and all this mystique that we can talk about, but this is like literally a part of the solution stack that our customers 
They're trying to figure out how to integrate and actually normalize and our ability to actually work together, tell that story, get it out to market and then continue to innovate. That's, you know, it's yeah. frankly why I still get super excited to work on this every day when I wake up in the mornings. So, yeah. Well, and it, and it feels like we're finally hitting a critical mass too, right, Casey? I mean, we're seeing yeah, major enterprises sign on, right? So we talked about OpenAI, right? So we've announced OpenAI has signed on and T-Mobile has signed on with us to revamp their program, right? We, we're seeing that these not, not just small organizations signing on, but large multinational global organizations are signing on to be able to tap into that creativity. And then the flip side of that too is now we're starting to see this critical mass around the regulatory environment. So I know Casey, yeah. you've done a lot with hacking policy council and the, the recent CRA letter that was sent out. I mean, you wanna talk a little bit about that because I think that's also starting to illustrate the work that you and others have done to create this industry and start to create this marketplace concept from a hacking perspective where this is something that is readily adopted and not only readily adopted, actually being pushed out to market by regulatory bodies. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, it, it goes back to this idea of it just being normal. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like the idea of the idea of going out to uh, to the internet and saying, hey, could you please not do this thing that we don't like you doing? Uh, you know, the internet doesn't have a rich history of actually listening to that stuff. So I'd, I question the wisdom of thinking that as a thinking of it as a way to defend yourself in the first place. But then on top of that, you know, you've got all these hackers that have been at the table wanting to help, um, but not really being quite sure if their actions would be confused with you know, the actions of criminals um, or if they'd be interpreted as actually being in good faith and being helpful, right. that creates a chilling effect. So you end up with all these different people that have this incredible capacity to help that are basically being told that maybe that's not a good idea just because of the fact that a bunch of laws haven't been updated in the past 20 or 30 years. So, you know, with the stuff with, with Hacking Policy Council, with the changes in, you know, the charging rules that came down from DOJ in, in uh, you know, May of last year, you know, the CRA happening in EMEA at this point in time, there's all of these different, there's definitely a groundswell at the policy level as well to basically say, hey, we've had this, you know, I refer to it as a auto, like um, hackers as the internet's immune system. We've had basically this immune deficiency that's been kind of slowing down our ability to apply these kind of solutions for as long as the internet's existed. And we're now starting to pretty actively see progress in solving that problem as well. Okay, well, I think you know when when you were when we first started, Casey, uh, you would you were talking about how you know we've the 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 it's a common thing that comes up of people saying, well, you know, we we've been doing this for years and yet we still have these problems. You know, or, you know, I, I I my my security budget goes up twenty percent every year. I buy new tools. I hire more people, and yet I still and and yet I end up with more problems uh, somehow. Um, and and mm -hmm. I've and you know many years ago I had that conversation with someone where I was like you know I was coming from the perspective of yeah that's a really good point if I'm spending so much money like every year well, why isn't the problem gotten better and you know and I don't remember who it was but they were like well everything else is changing all the time too so like yeah. yes your budget went up but also new technologies were introduced and the, and the, and your your attack surface expanded and the threat landscape expanded and everything changed so. It's like yes, everything's going up because everything is going up. Um, and and I think from this perspective, you know, like I said, you know, like 20, 30 years ago, it was just you know, cross-site scripting and 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 buffer overflows. 
Mm. And, you know, I'd like to think that for the most part, we've addressed those. <laughs> you know, that I, I'm sure that still happens. But um, but the thing is, there's always something new. Um, and and, mm. and I and I think also that a, a lot of people who aren't in security, I think that part becomes a little bit confusing as, as well, because they'll be like, well, wait a minute. If I already like, you, you know, you, you I, I bought this product, I installed it. You sent me some patches. Why are there more patches again next month? Like, why didn't you, you know, why, why do there keep being patches? Why aren't I secure yet? Yeah, yeah, totally. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, I think that's spot on in terms of the environment changing. I think as well, like the, the resourcing and the sophistication and frankly, the breadth of the adversary continues to evolve as well. Like something that I'd love to throw out. Um, yeah, when I'm talking to folk just in the security space, because we'll, we'll have those kind of like semi like nihilist moments of like, why haven't we fixed all this stuff yet? Oh my gosh, um, that is the thing that happens. And to me, you know, part of it is is because like the whole reason we're here in the first place is because of the adversary. They just decided to pack up and go home. You know, we we'd probably all you know be able to go off and find other things to do with our time and, and probably struggle that with that for a bit but you get what i mean like they're, they're the ones yeah. that are preeminent in our industry right so you think about what's happening out there you know you've got you've got ransom as a business model like forget about ransomware as a piece of malware but ransom as a business model that's that's that didn't exist 10 years ago as a, as a commonplace way for some criminals to make money all of a sudden they've monetized denial of availability in the system so their bar in terms of what they have to technically achieve to do that has gone down and they found these incredible ways for them to make a butt ton of money out of that which they then reinvest as good criminal business people into being more sophisticated and more efficient oh. the next time around right so like it's literally that kind of goes back to what i was saying before the environment's changing users are changing but then also attackers are getting better at what they do like criminal enterprises are flourishing and like we're the recipients of the reinvestment of that profit, right? So the fact that it's getting harder for us at the same time to me is not a huge shock. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that 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 evolution, you know, I, and I've, I've you know seen seen the whole evolution from you know script kitties to you know sort of like cyber gangs that were just groups of script kitties to you know cyber crime groups that are more like your you know your your you know Russian and Chinese you know threat. Uh, threat groups or whatever, but to your point, and you know, ransomware ransomware is the is the the, the big thing we we always focus on. But that underground world has become its own. It's just a it's a it's a bizarro reflection of the of the corporate world we live in, where there are there are there are companies out there that just. All they do is like accounts receivable and payable for cybercrime yeah. groups. There are there are companies out there that just do yeah. HR and hiring for cybercrime groups. You know, so it's like you can have a quote unquote legitimate job working for the bad guys. Where like you're not doing anything, you're not hacking into any systems, you're not writing exploit code, you're not you're you know what you're doing is a semi-normal thing. You're just reviewing resumes and hiring people. Um, but you're hiring people for the bad guys. Yep, 100%. Um, I mean, even you know the the idea of it was funny when ransomware is a service that that service model because you know ransomware to me is just a fascinating case study. And you're right, it's not the only version of cybercrime that we're dealing with, but I think it's the one that's been most 
visible in its rise and it's the easiest to talk about in a lot of ways. Um, and there was two things that happened that were really, to me, fascinating about that space. One was when um, the ransomware as a service operator kind of service layer appeared. So you've got your actual criminal groups and then you've got your people that like basically borrowed the Silicon Valley playbook and said, oh, look, if we've got recurring revenue and if we've got the ability to concentrate our technology stack, do all these different things that actually works, you know, in the legit world, if you're building a technology company, but apply that into into a criminal market, then logically that's going to work quite well. And lo and behold, it did, right? So there's that. Um, then you've got the um, the initial access broker group, which is basically folk that are going out and just opportunistically stumbling across whatever access they, they can right. find and, 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 then sell, and selling that as a marketplace. It's like, it's yeah, and that, that part is really interesting to me because it's sort of like, you know, there are these guys that who are who are good at scouring the internet, finding the chinks in the armor and getting into systems. But then they have this sort of like, there is like an ethical or moral code there where they're like, yeah, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not the guy that encrypts your stuff and, and asks for a ransom. I don't, I don't do that. Um, but I will sell access to the guy that does that. <laughs> there could be all sorts of reasons for it, but I, I do think, and this is, you know, bringing it back around to, to bug out of what we do. Like the thing that actually makes that so effective in a lot of ways is the diversity that you were just calling out. Like each each one of those contributors, each one of those different parts of that puzzle is very strong and very good at its own thing. It knows that, and part of what it does is plugs into this marketplace opportunity according to its access. And that, you know, honestly, I think that's a lot of um, a lot of that's actually reflective of how we've tried to always think about the business and ultimately what we've built over the past ten years. Because who the heck knows what we're going to be talking about in five years' time? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. like the idea of of AI being commoditized and we're talking about RAN, all these different things. If you'd have wound the tape back five years ago and, and preempted this conversation then, I'm not sure that we would have predicted 100% of this stuff. I think the same is going to be true five years from now. And that's that's our job is to, is to actually provide capability to stay out of that as best we possibly can. Yes. I, I mean, I agree with that. And I think, too, that, again, kind of tying it back to this the business model that is evolving on the, the, the threat side, um companies on the on 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 the good side need to be aware of or pay attention to that how how that evolves as well because and i'm gonna, I'm gonna tie this back to um you know kind of kind of you know managed service providers you know just the, the, the things where it's like every company almost every company feels like they need to do their own security and they've got to hire their own security professionals they need their own security team um and on some level, I get it because we're talking about protecting sensitive information, confidential information, proprietary information, and you don't want to, you know, necessarily give the keys to that to someone else. But on the other hand, that someone else is a professional. That that's what they do. What they do is security all day, every day. They do it for a living. They see the threats across not just your company but other companies as well. And the example that I've used for years is sort of like. You know, companies don't go hire their own doctors. Companies don't, you know, it's like you, there are things that you just, you, you you go find a professional who does that because they're trained to do that. Um, and you don't, you, you don't, there you can't just bring everything in house. Um, right. and, and it's not even, it's not a good idea to bring everything in house. Yeah, fully agree. 
Um, and I think I, I think again, that's where the, this this whole marketplace concept really starts to come into play because now you can, to your point, tap in in real time to all right, who is the best at X, Y, or Z? Right, this is where we know that this person is an absolute rock star for whatever, maybe a specific part of IoT or specific part of hardware, specific part of web testing or or web three or api or something else and and that's where you have the ability without because again these are folks that would be incredibly expensive if you can even get them to try to bring them onto your staff right they can collaborate with partner with the internal teams right we see that on a regular basis right we're not looking to replace internal teams this is really augmenting and starting to build this again, collaboration and being an extension or an advisor to that internal security team, right? For very specific use cases where we can drop in the right type of tester in the right program at the right time, right? We have our own AI that's matching the right researchers with the right programs. And then as that company starts to shift gears and, and look at another program or another project, we can then make sure we have the right testers for those programs as well, right? So to your point, I think that's where you do need that specialist, right? You're not looking for your, if you go back to the medicine example, right? Your, your general practitioner, you're not looking for somebody to come in and just be an expert at everything. You want hyper-focused specialists that can come in, diagnose a problem, show you how to fix it, and then go on to the next program and next project while your internal security team kind of manages what that orchestration looks like with the help of, again, a platform like ours or others. Yeah, and, and you know what, also going back to what we started with, in this context, you know, for for what Bug Crowd does, hiring someone internal, even if they're the very best at what they do, doesn't necessarily achieve the goal because yeah. that person then becomes part of the cognitive bias of, okay, well, I work for this yeah. company, I understand the products, I, I know what it's supposed exactly. to do. It's like you 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 want that outside perspective. Yeah, yeah. You want you want that breaker mentality to come in, right? It's important that you have the builders. It's important that the the building culture is is core to what you're doing from a, a product or solution set or, or service set. But again, to your point, you you want somebody to come in that's going to look at that. And to Casey's earlier point, how do we flip this thing on its head and see what it can really do, or what happens if I try to change uh, one piece of it, or if I try to use it in an incorrect way, right? That's really the opportunity that customers can take advantage of by getting that outside perspective. Casey, anything else you would add there just in terms of? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, well, I think there's also, you know, to, to your point, um, Tony, around, <clears throat> you know, the diversity that you need to bring into even just what we just covered off there. Um, and the fact that that's constantly evolving and changing, it's not necessarily economically rational to, to run straight to hiring like the person with the latest and greatest skills and then try to retain them on your team. Like that's, that's just doesn't make sense. So this, this kind of collaborative contribution aspect, um, you know, you were kind of relating this back to MSSPs before. I think that's, that's a hundred percent right. Um, and I think the reasons that we've just covered off kind of sum it up, like you want access to rare skills on a just in, just in time and, or, or, and on an as needed and on a like as they come over the hill basis as well, like this whole idea about, you know, how do you do threat modeling or how do you do adversarial testing against machine learning or AI environments that have been deployed into production over the past six months? Like there's not a huge number of experts in that um, area, you know, globally right now. 
and there will be because it's ramping up incredibly quickly, as you know, right? But mm -hmm. at that onset, all right, what do? Like as an organization, how do I get access to, to this talent pool that's already incredibly scarce? I think the other side of it is just being able to do it on a continuous basis and being able to actually have this sort of thing being applied you know, constantly instead of it just being a project-based thing. Sometimes you need a focused effort with a, a, a particular set of skills to look at a particular thing and get it done. Other times you need people to be looking as often as you can possibly get them to do that. And I think distributing the resource pool that you're actually drawing from to have that happen is a pretty good way to solve that particular problem as well. Okay. Um, I want to bring it back. Uh, you know, Dave, you touched on uh ai but you know so you know like we don't need to go down the rabbit hole i mean ai whole thing <laughs> separate podcast uh, that's right and and Bingo. Uh, but, but you know we get kind of pulling back from from what you the the stuff you pointed out uh you know from from the the mind of the hacker report uh you know it's a, i think you guys had 55 percent were using ai in some way shape or form but interestingly 72% said that they don't you know that they think that the creativity that you need as human hackers is not something that can be replicated which we you know I, I agree which you know, we talked about is it, or or at least I would say I agree in the current state of AI you know who knows what AI is lo looks like 5 10 years from now but right. right now I would say it can only be as creative as you can program it to be so by definition it can't think out of the box per se um I guess for from either of you, like, how do you see AI? You know, like for for the fifty five percent who say they are using AI tools, like, you know, how how, how do you how, how what what are they doing? Like, how how are you using how how is AI applied to this now? And kind of, you know, do you see that evolving? Like, how do you how do you see the future of AI with this? You know, with with what Bugcrowd does. Yeah, there's there's a lot of ways to unpack that. I think from from the yeah, hacker perspective, I, I think it's going to make them far more efficient and productive because it will help them start to one as they think about recon and, and threat intel on the environment that they're going to go look to attack. They're going to be able to leverage that to get data that much quicker. They're going to be able to get more in-depth insights before they start their testing. It's going to help them automate some of the workflows that they would run on a daily basis so they're not doing that manually. Again, it's that creativity piece that we're, we're still always going to need them at the core of what we do, but it is going to help make them far more efficient. And it also from a platform and service provider standpoint, it makes us that much more efficient because now we can help to surface some of those insights, both to the hacker community, right? In terms of this is what the environment looks like that you're about to go test, or from a customer perspective, hey, these are the five or 10 people globally that are the absolute right tester for your program. Don't send this out to 3000 people in a database, actually go to the five or 10 people that know how to do this testing and can drive intrinsic value for you and then also, again, then be able to surface up, hey, these are the insights from the reporting. This is remediation guidance, right? Whatever else it is where they can get that real-time visibility. Yep. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I think some some um, sort of, you know, in the in the wild examples of, of hackers using you know, AI in, in, in testing, um, it's, it's a lever. Like, I, I do see it as a tremendous lever in the same way that basically automation's always been to the hacking community once people figure out how to script a process and and apply automation um to you know lower 
low order tasks in a way that frees them up to do higher order things from a creative standpoint. Like they're always going to look for opportunities to do that. And I think the biggest thing with AI is it's just a really like honking huge lever that, that we haven't really interacted with the likes of in the past. So the way it's being used is, is all sorts of different things. But, you know, for example, um, people using, um, you know, building out scripting tools to, to basically pass the output of something that's doing scanning or something that's doing like active reconnaissance, feeding that back to an LLM that's been trained on the entire public body of knowledge of like what could go wrong or right based on those, you know, kind of environmental variables they just passed up and then basically getting a what do next um, tip from from that LLM as a part of how they're, you know, it's, it's almost kind of auto hacking at that point. And, um, you know, the first time I saw that um, kind of thing being used in the wild, it's like this, this changes a lot of things in terms of the cost of attack. Like this is putting tooling in the hands of such a like radically larger number of people than we're probably used to because I think traditionally we think that you know there's a, a limited set of folks that have a high degree of sophistication and there's a cost of entry that most people can't pay so that you know that that kind of adversary is quite small and it's quite tightly defined i think what ai has done on the bad guy side yeah. in a way that also creates availability and opportunity for the good guys as well it's just broaden that pool all of a sudden everyone's an expert or they've got the ability to be an expert if they can use ai in the right way yeah. well and you, you bring up a good point which is no matter, you know, like creativity, you know, definitely comes into play at some point. But there are sort of defined steps in terms of yeah, right. reconnaissance and, you know, establishing a footprint and trying to move laterally, like, like all the things that you might try to do. A lot of those things can be scripted or automated in some way where you can just say, well, you know, I mean, and then, and, and, and we, I mean, we've had that from, you can, from the at the very least, you can years, form years, a process years. around them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. You know, it's just, I mean, that's, that's what, you know, when, you know, like years and years ago, uh, you know, writing about, you know, when windows security in general, and there were all the things about, you know, if you put an unprotected system on, on the internet, you know, how many minutes will it take before it's compromised? And, 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 I remember, you know, some people who aren't in technology or security kind of be like, well, you know, like how, why, why, why would they target my system? I'm like, look, nobody's targeting you. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody cares who you are. <laughs> there are just tools out there that are just constantly looking for. Oh, look, there's a new IP on right. the on the on the on the internet, and it yep, it's yes. not protected. Um, and so yeah, if you can automate those things and say, you know, so you know, if I if I'm targeting you know, bug crowd, and I just start you know, looking at the, you know, the, the, the public facing infrastructure of bug crowd. And I say, yeah. okay, well, here, run these tools, figure out where the holes yeah. are. And then, you know, and then at some point, generate a report back to me that says, hey, here's what we found. Here are some ways in. Here's some, here's some servers you might want to take a look at. But then there's like a handoff to, okay, well, now, human being, I need you to go do something creative with this information. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think there's a there's a very like this is where I see this kind of get messed up a fair bit because there's a pretty distinct difference in my mind between knowledge and the application of knowledge, right? Like what what AI does, especially in an LLM um, kind of construct, is it gives you you know access in a pretty intuitive way to whatever the entire body of training data was that actually fed up into that particular system, which is why you know I can be in a position. I mean, when I first got into into IT, I remember um, actually having a job interview question where I got asked a, a technical thing that I didn't actually have the answer to in that moment. But what I told them was how I'd Google it. 
and literally how I'd like issue a search to Google to get myself to a place where I felt like I had the answer, even though I didn't in that moment, right? And I got that job. They're like, no one's ever answered that question like that before. I'm like, yeah, but that's what we do. Like if we're working in in IT or security, we can't presume that we know absolutely everything there is to know about how to solve every single problem. So that leads the gap, right? And I think the, you know, the, the ability to fill that gap really quickly is the thing that's, um, you know, particularly LLM um, kind of focused AI is, is put in the hands of a whole bunch of people. But then, yeah, I mean, that knowledge on its own doesn't get me to my outcome. You know, as a, as a, as a malicious or even a good faith attacker, I've got a particular goal in mind great, all the knowledge in the world about my environment is not going to actually help me get to that outcome because it doesn't understand the context of my question. I'm the one who has to put that together and decide what to do next. So I think that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of where I see this sort of um, continuous sort of marriage between technology and humans just in general. And I also see see that getting confused a lot um, when, when people talk about, you know, AI replacing human creativity. I'm like, it's, better than humans at a lot of things um, that, that, that you know we struggle at like remembering everything for example right that's a huge win but that doesn't replace the creative decision making process that a human can bring into that process into that whole kind of idea yeah um, yeah I mean you know it, it, it you know for, for me it you know and just kind of agreeing with your point it's that and this actually goes back not just to the current LLM generative AI model, but just machine learning and cybersecurity in general. You know, I, I've looked at at that for years and just said, well, look, the 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 sheer volume of threats out there and the size of the attack surfaces, the size of the threat landscape is simply too large for any human being or team of human beings to effectively like analyze everything coming in, but more importantly to, and tying it to what you just said, to remember everything that's ever happened. And that's, that's where I thought like, yeah, but the machine learning can do that. The machine learning can very quickly just say, oh, I recognize this from that thing, you know, five years ago on, you know, and it can, it can cycle through the information and, and, and find that, find those little tidbits and connect those dots a lot faster than a human being would be able to. Yeah, but then it's going to be confidently wrong probably about 70% of the time, which is where the role of the human operator comes back in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like you look at yeah, some of the stuff, like I think um, yeah, this uh, kind of the the collective freakout people had when they started to realize that LLM hallucinations were a thing. It's like, of course they are. Like this is a, this is a machine pretending to be a human. Like a part of a part of the output of that is is it's going to be confidently wrong about stuff and as a as a human operator you've actually got to apply your own you know experience and creativity and discretion to figure out whether that's true or false and the same thing goes for a SOC analyst the same thing goes for a CISO when they're having all of this stuff distilled and passed up to them by their team the same thing goes for for you know pretty much anyone who's got any kind of decision making control over anything like the, these are you can't delegate that decision making off to, to automation and just call a job done because at the end of the day we'll screw something up and at that point in time you know you're on the block for for getting yeah. that decision wrong so yeah i mean i you know i i, I understand your chat gpt we'll, we'll, we'll pick on that one in particular even though i know there's a thousand others but chat gpt you know they all do it but yeah <laughs> it's a constantly yeah. evolving thing i mean you know it's a, you know it's a, it's admittedly a, a kind of an open beta and and they're you know they're 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 constantly evolving and working on it but a few months back, 
I had done a thing where I, I, I asked it, you know, to write it. To, I was like, well, write an article about this specific topic. I gave it some 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 links, and and I said, uh, hey, I want you to you, I want you to quote weave in some quotes, and I want you to cite your sources, and it did all of that all of the above. And I looked at the article. And I said, okay, this is this is actually a semi well written article. Um, you know, you, you could you could just publish that article. Uh, with a few minor edits, but then I went back and looked at it, and, and it gave quotes from recognizable names. You know, so it would say, you know, hey, Casey Ellis said blah blah blah, and I'd say, okay, that seems like something Casey Ellis might say. Um, but I went and Googled it and could not find any time where these quotes ever happened. Um, and then when I looked at the links, the links also seemed like very nice links. They were like. NBC.com, Reuters, BBC, um, you know, and and the and had decent titles that were relevant to the, the content at, at hand. But you click on the links and they all went to 404 pages because the links didn't exist. And right. and so the thing is, it was and I forget the name of the cognitive bias for that, but there is a cognitive bias, um, you know, like like you know, you just said that it's, it's uh, confidently wrong. But human beings, if the if the answer is stated authoritatively enough will accept it as fact. And many, many, many people out there just automatically assume that the AI is smarter than them. The AI, the AI knows things they don't know. So if, the, if that's the answer the AI gave you, then it must be true. And you know, so the problem is someone else out there would just take that article and publish it. Yep. And a lot of people wouldn't question it because no one, you know, who's going to take all the time to go look, click on all the links and go see if Casey Ellis ever said that thing or not. Um, <laughs> You know, and then that becomes a self-feeding cycle of deteriorating the the uh, the data model. Because now, next time ChatGPT goes to look for information, it says, "Oh, well, I've got this quote from Casey Ellis, <laughs> and I've got this link." You know, and it's like, "Well, yeah, but those are those are some bullshit you made up. They don't even exist." <laughs> yep. Yep, and that is that is that. I mean, we I think we saw a precursor to that with with some of the things that we saw, you know, machine learning. Creators an impact um, in in social media. You know, this this is you, know, you go back to you know, uh, information warfare, disinformation back as far as 2016, and it's kind of a similar thing. I think the AI that we're interacting with right now, everyone's actually touching it directly, so we've got a better understanding of what it is. But when you think about it, like we've actually seen the evidence of of that particular feedback loop being one that's pretty powerful and pretty important to get right. Like that's actually been kicking around for quite some time now. And we're talking about this in context of news and truth and all those different things. I think bringing it back into cybersecurity directly, um, same thing applies for a SOC analyst or for someone who's who's getting, you know, like the output of a, of a vulnerability management exercise and working out what they should go off and fix next to make the users more resilient. Like, okay, you know, is it right? Is it not right? Like there's going to need to be that discretion applied to it. I think failure to do that is just as relevant in, in those sorts of domains. I think it's a lot more obvious when we're talking about news and whether or not I actually made a quote and all those different things. But yeah. I think that same principle applies to just about all of what we're talking about here as well. But and that's also been, I think, one of the. I won't say that I'm not going to go out out and say that you know an entire element of cybersecurity has has completely failed, but the slow uptake of things like SOAR, it's like, well, it's it's a neat concept conceptually, being able to say, hey, I've detected these things. You know, the machine learning says this, 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 and this, 
and therefore take this action. But the problem is very few companies are, are willing to trust that the machine learning knows what it's doing enough to let it take action. And for good reason, like, like you just pointed out, I was like, if you let it take action, that's a gamble. Hmm. Right. So, you know, it comes back to, uh, you know, that AI, you know, won't, won't replace humans, but it will augment them, which I will also say has, has quickly become trite. We went from we went from everyone jumped on the AI bandwagon to AI is going to replace everyone to now every single AI presentation I see starts off with, okay, but AI is not going to replace everyone. It's just going to augment. Um, you know, and I, I I don't remember the person's name, so I can't give proper credit. But uh, I, I was at a thing when I was in San Francisco. Uh, someone said, uh, you know, gave gave this quote of, "It's not that AI is going to replace you; it's that people who understand how to use AI are going to replace you." Yes. Yeah, I think that's I think that's well said. Um, I, I think I was kind of tapping on that idea before when I was talking about AI being most useful to, to replace low order tasks and, and free up time for high order tasks. Um, some, you know, there's there's jobs and in entire industries that are that are built around, you know, what AI is going to be pretty well positioned to, to ultimately replace at some point in the future. And I think that's a real that's a real challenge. Like that's a that becomes a societal issue at that point. But if you sort of zoom back from that, like this is where, you know, I do think that kind of, that kind of, you know, relationship between um, humans as the operator of AI, like the, you know, the master and not the servant in a sense, um, but then treating it in that way, trying to figure out how to use it as a lever instead of something that I just kind of outsource all of my thinking to and call it a day. Um, that's going to, you know, I do think that's going to be an active decision as well, because you're right, like it, 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 the pendulum swung in multiple directions on this one. Um, you know, like 2015, um, I recall here in, in the Bay was was a really strong kind of season of belief in this narrative that AI could replace human operators and cybersecurity like soup to nuts. And there was a lot of companies that received a lot of investment based on that thesis that later turned out to not be able to solve the problems they said they could because it just wasn't true in the first place. Like it was a attractive mm -hmm. and interesting idea, but it just, that was never going to fully happen. Right. <clears throat> um, yeah. I think, I think as long as, you know, we're, we're thinking about things actively in that direction that we've got the ability to actually steer towards better outcomes and, you know, coming back to where we started, like I, I honestly just believe that's the nature of how things are, right? Like if we fully outsource everything to AI, then ultimately, we're going to end up realizing that it made decisions that you know we wouldn't have necessarily thought were the right decisions and then there's consequences that we've got to roll back from on that and that can happen at a micro scale all the way up to the very big right um on the flip side it's a powerful lever that we've got available to us now and we should be using it so you know somewhere between those two extremes i think there's a oh. th there's a path yeah well, yeah, okay. it comes back, I think, Tony, to what you said, right? It's it's it augments the human being, right? It's not yeah. going to replace, but it's going to augment. Well, and I, and, and I was going to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation around that's what the bad guys are doing. I mean, the bad guys were, you know, they've already figured out how to use machine learning and scripting tools. They've already figured out how to use AI, you know, and the thing is, if the bad guys are still applying human creativity, to break into your network, you're still going to need human creativity to figure out how to stop it. 
Precisely. Precisely. Um, I, I think like we've 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 gone we've gone all sort around all sorts of different angles of this one, but that that to me is one of the simplest reasons why you know human creativity won't ever really be replaced by automation in in our field. It's because the whole reason we're here in the first place is because of human human people with human you know incentives, human reasons for doing things, and who apply human creativity to basically are innovating us. If AI was to make life that difficult for, for the adversary that it was their choice to pack up and go home and find some other way of doing their thing or to innovate past that and come up with something new, like history's kind of shown that they go for the latter option. They don't just quit right. at that point in time. So, yeah, what comes yeah. after that? Not sure. And it's going to be a creative process to solve at that point in time as well. And if science fiction is any indicator, which it generally is oh, given it a long it enough <laughs> yeah, like it's not it's not an indicator of what's going to happen next year but it does seem to be a fair indicator of what's going to happen within the, say, the next 25 years um it, you know th there are plenty of examples in science fiction of you know ai type things that are controlling things that the thing that allows you to bypass it or the thing that allows you to break it is simply that humans can be unpredictable and that, you know, so so like if you did outsource all of your security and say, hey, look, this AI seems to be doing a pretty good job. It knows it knows what it's doing. It, it, it detects the threats. It shuts things down. You know, we're good. It's like, yeah, you're good until someone does something that the AI just simply could not anticipate because it was insane. <laughs> yeah. Or that, or that maybe it was sane, but to the AI, it was insane. Right. And therefore, it, just, it was yeah, successful. It, it <laughs> sense. You know, like typing gibberish into the name field. Um, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, I wanted to kind of kind of wind things down, but I'll, I'll I'll leave it to each of you to you know any, any closing thoughts on you know on this conversation or anything anything coming up on the horizon with Bug Crowd in particular. Um, so uh, yeah, whoever wants to go first. Casey, after you. Uh, well. Geez, I mean, we've covered so much turf here. It's it's kind of hard to sum it up. I, you know, I I think um, yeah. Look, the the humans are always going to be a part of solving cybersecurity. It's back to where I started. Like I I do view all of what we do as a fundamentally human problem that technology just speeds up, and to me, therefore, that requires humans as a part of the solution when you've got gaps between our defenses and what the bad guys are doing. So that's that's really why we're here. You know, there's a there's this ecosystem around it that we've kind of touched on different points of. Like we talked about the policy piece, we talked about the social acceptance of hackers piece, we talked about the role of AI. Like, yeah, that's right. Because it's this entire kind of you know ecosystem of things that we're ultimately all here trying to keep safe as we go forward. And that's that's how you know we've focused the company over the past 10 years and I'm you know very very excited about what we've got coming over over the hill you know very excited to be to be working with Dave and working with the crew and, and being able to push all these things forward and um you know it's great to be chatting about it it's actually really cool um Tony because I've recalled you know aspects of the conversations that we had in Vegas as we've been talking here and even just the evolution of of that do you know what yeah. I mean I feel like at that point in time it was all about is this insane a hacker is going to break everything like is this even a good idea in the first place how do we make this possible to a point that right. we're at now where it's like all right now we're trying to normalize it and, and just make it as useful as we possibly can into as many security use cases as we can apply ourselves um i get jazzed about that and um 
yeah, that's that's probably where I'll where I'll land it from my side. All right. What about you, Dave? Cool. No, that's awesome, Tony. Thanks for having us again. I think uh, we're we're having a ton of fun. We've got some announcements coming out here shortly, uh, just around some of the the recent success that we've seen in the market and and some of the folks that have joined our team. We've obviously added a lot of people to the business over the last twelve months, so it's been a really fun. Uh, 2023 for the bug crowd business and the team so far and we're excited for what's to come in 24 so yeah thanks thanks again for having us and appreciate all the time today all right well thank you guys for joining me it was fun awesome cheers i appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast but i also invite you to engage on social media uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts. 